The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The reality is very different when you're inside. And so we have thousands of people across, you know, the product team, Rachel's team, policy team, and the operations team just putting out fires, dealing with new threats, dealing with new safety issues, dealing with bad actors who are trying to skirt the rules, as well as trying to proactively sort of make the whole system work better. And I think it's very easy to lose sight of the whole. I'm Evelyn Dweck, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, August 5, 2021. There have been a thousand hot takes on the Facebook oversight board, the Supreme Court-like thing that Facebook set up to oversee its content moderation. The board generated so much press coverage when it handed down its decision on Donald Trump's account that Kate and Tiffany at The Atlantic called the whole circus like Shark Week, but less scenic. Everyone weighed in, from board members to lawmakers, academics, critics, and um, lawfare podcast hosts. But there's a group we haven't heard much from, the people at Facebook who are actually responsible for sending cases to the board and responding to the board's policy recommendations. Everyone focuses on the board members, but the people at Facebook are the ones that can make this board experiment actually translate into change, or not. So this week, for our Arbiters of Truth series on our online information environment, in light of Facebook's first quarterly update on the board, I talked with Jennifer Broxmeyer and Rachel Lambert, both of whom work at Facebook on Facebook's side of the Oversight Board experiment. What do they think of the first six months or so of the Oversight Board's work? How do they grade their own efforts? Why is their mark different from mine? And will the Oversight Board get jurisdiction over the metaverse? It's the Warfare Podcast, August 5, Facebook's thoughts on its oversight board. Jennifer and Rachel, thank you so much for joining me. As is now my customary first question for people from tech platforms when they join the podcast, I'm obviously not going to ask you to answer for all of Facebook's sins, but can we start with each of you describing your roles at Facebook so that we know exactly which sins we can ask you to answer for? (laughs) That is a great intro, Evelyn. So I'm Jen Broxmeyer. I am the Director of Content Governance, and I lead the Facebook side of the Oversight Board work. And so there's a team of, I think at this point, we're close to about 50 people across my team, product, which Rachel's on and she can share more about, policy, ops, and a number of other teams that are working behind the scenes to to make sure that everything works. And so that ranges from 
making sure that users can appeal their cases to the board. When the board selects cases, preparing what we call case files. It's sort of similar to a brief that you would file in court about what happened, what the policy was. We also have a now a team, I think I can call them a team, of people who are responsible for implementing the board's decisions and especially the recommendations, which I'm sure we can talk more about. And then just more generally, I spend a lot of time thinking about what does the future of the board look like? What are other things we can bring in scope? Where are other areas that they can have impact? Hey, I'm, I'm Rachel. I'm a product manager here in our community integrity group. And our teams are working on how to improve transparency of our integrity work. A, a lot of other companies reference this as trust and safety work. We call it integrity here at Facebook. And ensuring that there's also meaningful oversight of our efforts in integrity and enforcement. We recognize that a lot of these decisions that we are making are too important for us to act alone. So making sure that we are able to share as much of our approach as we can with the public and with our stakeholders and with our community is really important. Oversight Board has been one of our biggest investments so far to date. And Transparency Center is also a hub that we have now for where we are explaining more of Facebook's overall approaches to policy and enforcement and how we're responding to the Oversight Board's decisions and recommendations. So as with most, most product teams that you'll find in tech, I'm working with the designers and the engineers and researchers and data teams that are helping build out these tools for oversight and transparency. So this is inclusive of things like the tools that the board is using to be able to review all of these cases that people are submitting to them. It's also inclusive of the experiences that people have when they are taking their cases to the oversight board and how, we, how they can communicate as part of that, as well as building out the, the transparency center itself. So those are some of, some of the things that we're working on today and lots more exciting work to come. Awesome. I think that might be a record number of the times the word transparency has been said in, in two minutes uh, on this podcast. So I think that that's, that's great. And so I'm grateful that we can talk about pretty much everything that you guys canvass there. So I have, I have so many questions for, for you, and I'm really hoping that today we can kind of get into a more wonky and detailed discussion that gets a bit past the, the hot takes that tend to dominate this space. But let's let's start really high level. And I'd just ask you to sort of give a mark out of 10 for the oversight board for its performance so far. I think it's, you know, we'd say probably been going about six months now in terms of being operational. It obviously was being built out and, and, and set up much longer than that. And also why you would give that mark out of 10 and what makes a successful oversight board? How do you, what, what at the end of the day would the oversight board achieve that you would say, yes, this worked. That's, uh, that's what we wanted it to do. What's amazing to me is that we are only six or seven or eight months out. And I think we are where, honestly, at least I had hoped we would be two years out, which is hundreds of thousands of user appeals to the board, Facebook regularly sending cases to them, and the board issuing decisions at sort of a regular clip, reasoned, thoughtful decisions. And then the fact that the board is in the public consciousness to the extent it is, is pretty incredible. Um, especially when I reflect back to even a year ago where there's just no guarantee that this thing would work. It's, it's kind of this crazy idea. 
And the fact that we are here, there are 20 board members, they have a full staff, and it exists. They've issued decisions. We've put content back up as a result of their decisions. They've pushed for transparency. There it is again, transparency as a result of of their decisions. And so I don't know if I could give it a number. <laughs> I'm going to skip that part of the question. But but again, I think it's it's kind of amazing how blasé we are at this point when these decisions come out. Will you give it a color? Will you give it, you know, a, a heat map <laughs> metric? Is there something that you could get? It's uh, happy, sad. Um, does it give you feelings that you can reflect on? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, Guy Rosen, who leads Integrity, is a big fan of uh, of, of traffic light, red, okay, yellow, perfect, green. Okay, perfect. Oh, but you're going to give it a green. <laughs> I'll, I'll go. I'll go yellow, green. Okay. <laughs> so Jen, you previously referred to the idea of of a like the case file that's kind of like a brief that you submit to the board and the judicial analogies in this space are really, really common. Um, But one of the parts I think that's sort of more unique or or different to how Americans in particular might think of a court process is that the board issues these non-binding recommendations uh, that then Facebook has to take on board and there's no sort of enforcement mechanism on the board side. It's totally optional what you do with them. And the only obligation that you have is to respond. And so a big, big part of this is you know, whether Facebook's going to engage in this process in good faith or whether it's going to receive those recommendations and say, noted, thank you, we'll get back to you. And to my mind, this is the most important part of the oversight board experience or experiment, but it's actually the part that tends to get the the least attention. But I sort of probably, you know, as, as you might imagine, want to focus on that part for the rest of our conversation mainly. And so I'd I'd like to ask the same question again. What score would you give yourself on Facebook's engagement and responses to the oversight board so far? And and why would you you give it that? And I think we will come back later to why my score might be slightly different to yours. Uh, Let me start by saying, and I think we said this in the quarterly update too, the recommendations have turned out to be one of the richest and also most unexpected parts of the board for us. So when we set up the board and we created the bylaws and we really anticipated that the board would give us what we called policy guidance. And, and by that we meant, you know, your hate speech policy says this, we think it should say that. And we'd come up with a clear process for how we would take in those types of recommendations and, and update policies. What we didn't expect is, I think we are now at 65 recommendations from the board across how our product works, how we enforce translation, what data we're reporting on. And so I think what we have been working through is, is how, do we, how do we intake these? How do we deal with this number and scale and diversity of recommendations I'll start by saying the bias is always to do as much as we can. The bias is to take on the recommendation and implement it in some way. That's obviously not always possible. There are instances where we might disagree with the board, but the philosophy is we should do it. And if we can't do it, or if we disagree with the recommendation, we have to be very transparent as to why. And as far as how we've done, I think we've done okay. I think 
there is much more that we can do. And I think we're also reflecting more generally, are there, are, is there just a better process for this? You know, having every week or two, a slew of recommendations as diverse as add the sentence to this policy to translate this thing to some, you know, that are sort of do a better job <laughs> and take into account more context is challenging. And we have to make sure that we're evaluating the impact of some of, especially the big changes would have on the platform. I think, at least from my perspective, I think there's been significant improvement even between our first responses in February to our quarterly update last month. But I think that there's there's much more that we could and should be doing there. I, I think I would agree with a lot of what, what Jen said. One of the things that I think you brought up that's interesting is that this might be getting less attention in terms of how people talk about the board today, but it's probably one of the things that we talk about the most internally for how we can be more responsive. And as Jen was saying, how we can operationalize these recommendations in a better way for people that do work in product and who work in tech, like the concept of roadmaps is probably pretty familiar, but we, we, we are pretty methodical in how we structure a lot of our work. So figuring out how we ingest new unexpected recommendations that we want to make a best effort to be able to respond to in, in a real and meaningful way is, is hard when we are talking about doing that across dozens of teams and hundreds of engineers and hundreds of people. I think I agree with Jen's sentiment that this is something that we can definitely do a lot better with, both in terms of how we operationalize and what we do to actually respond to those recommendations themselves. I think like a good example of a, a really tough area of recommendation that we've seen from the board is asking for more specificity on helping people understand why content has been taken down or why it's kept up on the platform. This has been something that we've invested a lot in to be able to try to increase the level of specificity that we can give to people, but requires a lot of changes to how we think about how we train classifiers or how we uh, classify different types of content. That's like a technical challenge. And then there's also challenges that we face in, you know, how humans end up reviewing some of those decisions and the type of tooling and software and protocols that they're using. Um, so I think that we've seen good demonstrations of recommendations that we, we probably agree with the board on, but being able to implement those in full takes time and, and quite a bit of effort from our teams. Awesome. Yeah, I actually think this, that was one of the really cool updates coming out of the first three months report that you did. And you, you, know, you highlighted in the introduction and, and justifiably, I think this is a, a really great thing that the board's achieved where you've added a classifier to the automated systems that provide users with a reason for uh, why a piece of content might have been taken down for hate speech that's much more specific in in which category it, it fell into. And I, I just, I, I actually think that that's like a, a, a very tangible gain from the, the oversight board ex experiment. And so, but I think on the sort of general point that you raised about the very varied nature of the board recommendations and the the sweeping nature of them is is really important and maybe different to not only what sort of Facebook expected, but also what the public expected from what the board was set up to do. And also one of the areas where it received the most sort of before it started, the most skepticism and doubt and criticism. And I think we will come back to the, the point that you made Jen, about some of them being really nebulous and hard to respond to in specific terms. Because I think that's an area where I probably share a bit of frustration 
that you do with the board's way of framing that, it makes it very hard to respond to. But I actually think on the the general point of the sweeping nature of them, that this is something that the board has done really well and, and perhaps the best part of sort of their performance so far. So the, the main criticism and one that I made over and over and over again in a way that I found difficult to find new ways to say by the end of my time writing about this is that the original scope of the board was extremely, extremely narrow. So originally the, the mandate that you gave the board was just that it could review cases where Facebook had taken down a single piece of content. Um, you've now expanded that to be also where it's left up a piece of content. And I'm, I think that that was really necessary given that it sort of skewed the board's docket. But it still doesn't have the power over review of things like account suspensions, pages, events, the newsfeed algorithm. I could go on, but the upshot is that the board still doesn't have power over much of what's on Facebook. And, you know, without the the power to review what gets amplified or de-amplified in particular, that's some of the most important part of how Facebook works and and influences what people actually see when they open open Facebook. So from my perspective, I think it's really great that the board has used the limited remit of these individual cases that it's been given uh, to push for systemic change within Facebook. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm curious for your reflections on that because it seems like the, the original remit, I think, is more justifies the main criticism of the board that people make, which is that it's just PR. It's sort of window dressing and, you know, setting up a system where we're just going to be rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. And I'm curious whether you would agree with that criticism given the original remit and you understand why people were pretty frustrated with that. It's always meant to grow. Sort of this has always been, this is the beginning. And I think, again, we've seen that even within the first six months. And I should say, thanks to constant drum beating by you and a number of other stakeholders and the board itself, Rachel and her team were actually able to even move up the launch of what we call reporter appeal. So leave up content that's been left up. Hey, academic impact. Hooray. So academic <laughs> impact. Hooray. <laughs> No, no one should say academics don't have impact on industry. But it basically, as soon as we did that, we celebrated for an hour. And then the next discussion was, okay, what comes next? And I think what the recommendations have allowed us to do in a way is broaden out beyond just content type. So obviously, we are looking at accounts. I think accounts is an area where I'm personally most interested. But groups, pages, there are other things that we can talk about. But I think there's also beyond that, where are other areas, whether it's through recommendations, whether it's through AR, VR and the metaverse, is there a way to engage the board there? And so that is that is very much part of the remit is to keep growing. That actually was my next question, which is whether um, the oversight board would be given jurisdiction in the metaverse uh, and the alternate reality. So that's uh, that's cool to know it's on the agenda. Rachel, I, I think this is something that you've worked on specifically, which is that I think a lot of people would say, hey, why can't you just give the oversight board you know, jurisdiction to leave up pieces of content? Isn't there just some switch that you can flick within Facebook to make that happen? And my understanding is that things like that are a bit more technically complex than people might think, and whether you could talk about that. That's right. So I, I remember having a, a conversation with you even before we had launched what we were calling reporter appeals and sharing some of, some of this context. 
So as Jen mentioned, we are committed to making sure that the board has access to these significant and difficult decisions. It's really just about, you know, what is the right time frame and sequencing for that? When we were thinking about reporter appeals, it was more interesting to think about the complexities of what happens when content is still up on Facebook and the things that happen with like people that are actually viewing that particular case what this means when different people are reporting that case and how that Im impacts what the board is seeing as a case file. Um, so one of the things that happens when content is left up is many different people can report on that piece of content to Facebook and they might be able to report it for, for different reasons. And that, that was a complexity or a nuance that we wanted to make sure that the board was also able to see is what, what are different people reporting this piece of content for? Are they reporting it for hate speech violations? Are they reporting it for our bullying and harassment policies? Um, and being able to consider that as part of the case file. Um, we also needed to think about, you know, what happens in the case where the board says, we actually don't want to hear this case. We don't think that this meets the bar for significant and difficult. But then somebody decides to report that piece of content again to Facebook and then again to the oversight board. How do we make sure that the oversight board ha still has the ability to see a case under the merits for, for which it was reported by that specific individual, not just the fact that maybe they didn't get all of the context from the previous people who had reported that case. And then I would say the, the third thing that we were thinking about was introducing that the aspect of volume and managing the capacity that would come with any piece of live content that has gone through Facebook's reporting and appeal system is now eligible to take over to the board. We really wanted to make sure that we were working with the board to understand what kinds of tools that we could build for them to be able to take on this, this new volume that they'd be dealing with. So they're going from you know hundreds of, hundreds of cases submitted every day to seeing thousands of cases submitted every day. How can we make sure that they have the best searching and triaging tools and, and collaboration tools available to them so that they can make decisions on which of these pieces of content they want to be able to move forward with and build a case around. So I think that's a pretty good illustration of the idea that a lot of people in content moderation much more generally think, why doesn't X platform just do Y? Not limited to Facebook. You know, that just seems like such a, a an easy thing to do. And then when it comes to actually doing that, it's, it's bit more complicated than you might expect. And so I'm actually really curious for your thoughts on how the board's going on this front, Rachel. You know, the board's composition, as illustrious as it is, people like a Nobel Peace Prize laureate, a former judge of the European Court of Human Rights, former federal court judges, a veritable legion of law professors. And these aren't exactly uh, the kinds of people that are necessarily well acquainted with how AI or automated tools work or how to, you know, code. Uh, I don't think there's a single like designated engineer or, or coder on the board. And so I'm curious how you find their technical understanding, given that this is, you know, one of the main ways in which content moderation is actually really, really different from offline speech cases and from the way that an actual court would review a speech decision. One of the things that's different in content moderation is that implementation at scale makes it sort of an inherently administrative and engineering task as much as it is a theoretical and sort of one about lofty high principle. And so how do you find the, the, the way that they're speaking to you about these things, Rachel? 
So I, I think it's been really interesting to hear how they frame some of the challenges of using automation in, in the realm of content governance. I think it's really important that we hear those perspectives because not everybody works in a tech company. Even within tech companies, we don't always share the same understanding of how AI works. So it's, it's a really tough area. But it's also really important for us to consider where AI and automation can help play a role in this in a, in a place where we don't have that existing as part of our governance in real life today. Facebook can't do our job in moderating without some of the technology that we use with AI. You know, we have like a billion photos posted every day and hundreds of thousands of pieces of content appealed. And it's just not realistic to expect that humans are going to review every single piece of content that's reported. But I think just stepping back a little bit, there is a lot of power in how AI can be used to build a system that keeps the community more safe and still is able to protect, uh, protect people's voice and protect freedom of expression. So I think uh, just being able to demonstrate or illustrate a few areas where we use AI today. I think the most obvious case that, that most people are, are able to steer towards is that we end up using AI to detect potential violations based on our community standards today. And, you know, there are guardrails in place that we have for when we, use, when we introduce AI versus relying more on community reports or, or on human review to make those kinds of decisions. Like we look at accuracy guardrails before we introduce AI to make some of those decisions. Another area where we use AI today that is also helpful and important for keeping the community safe overall is that when we when we are looking at these hundreds of thousands or millions of reports over over every single week, we're using automation to be able to help us prioritize some of those jobs that may help keep the community safer. So this is the difference between, you know, somebody reporting a piece of content because it was insulting against their personal beliefs versus looking at, you know, content that's happening in a civil war zone and saying like, this is actually going to impact people on the ground in terms of their, in terms of their um, own safety and harm. Another area that, that we don't talk as much about is being able to apply AI to amplify decisions across our platform. So even take this in the case with oversight board uh, decisions, when the oversight board makes a decision and we say, we will apply this decision not only to uh, this piece of content, but also things that look like this, we are relying a lot on our automation technology to be able to do that as well. You know, this is this is a really interesting topic where I know there, there's been a ton of research on, on AI and, and how it's used in content governance. So I expect that this is going to be a really interesting area for us to continue having conversations with the board on how and where it's applied and how do we make sure that that's applied with the right, with the right guardrails and considering fairness and everything else that, that we're hearing about from the board. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Could your political views make you the target of cybercrime, identity theft, stalking, or even violence? I used to think this was silly, and then... Weird things started happening to me. Someone defaced my car. It had lawfare license plates on it. Somebody delivered weird antique postcards of Guantanamo Bay to my house. You know, weird stuff. The volume of personal data online has tripled between 2019 and 2023, and angry individuals fueled by political polarization can access it all for up to 98% of American citizens. And I was one of them. Lots of people were using my name, my home address, uh, other information about me to try to intimidate me. And I want to say that has dramatically slowed down in recent months. And one of the reasons is delete me. As I have said before, there are products here that I read the ads because, you know, that's my job. And there are products here that I read the ads because I really use them and really like them. And Delete Me is one of the lawfare advertisers that I am most enthusiastic about. And here's why. Uh, it finds and removes personal information I don't want online, and it makes sure it stays off. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from all of the largest search databases on the web. And in the process, it helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing, and phishing scams. And here's the important point. It doesn't just do it once because the information will get back into the systems. It does it and then it does it again. So the first time I got one of these reports and they send regular reports uh, at Delete Me, you know, there were a whole bunch of systems that I'd come off of. But then each time I get one now, there's still one or two or three that I'm back on the system and Delete Me has once again deleted me. So sign up and provide Delete Me with exactly what information you want deleted and their experts will take it from there. And as I say, they send regular personalized privacy reports showing what info they have found, where they found it, and what they removed. It's always working for you constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. When you sign up, they immediately go to work scrubbing all your personal information from data broker platforms. Your personal profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me now at a special discount 
for Lawfare listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use the promo code LAWFARE20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20, code LAWFARE20. So that question of how Facebook is transposing the board's decisions into areas where, apart from the individual case, Facebook has an obligation to implement that decision in areas of, you're going to have to help me. I don't have the the wording right in front of me now. Identical content in a parallel context. Great. So how Facebook is implementing the board's decisions in identical content in parallel context, I think is one of the most interesting parts of this because it's a clear you know, representation of whether the, the board's more systemic impact, right? Which is that obviously taking down one post is absolutely nothing in the ocean of Facebook content. But if that replicates into taking down a million posts because that same picture or something was posted in a number of different places, then that seems like a, a bigger role and a bigger decision. And I think that this is one part of the, the process where some more transparency uh, would be really nice. I think that's one part of the process which is really, really opaque at the moment. But I mean, if you have any really quick responses to that, I'd be curious yeah. to hear them. Yeah. So it's so interesting. I see PC, and I'm sorry, but it's just so much easier than saying identical content in parallel. Context. More memorable too, apparently. <laughs> It's an area where my thinking on it has totally changed. So as we were getting ready for the board to launch, we actually basically ran drills where we came up with with sort of pretend decisions to run through, okay, if the board decides this way, how would we scale that to identical content? And I'll say identical content means... So for example, let's say someone posts an image of Taylor Swift and they write a comment about it. The identical content is the image and then the parallel context would be what the comment is. So for example, is it is it praising? Is it condemning? Is it using other language? And so for example, if the post was praising, it must be praising. If it's condemning, then that's not ICPC because the, the context is in parallel. And so we really thought this was the place that would expand the board's impact was they would issue certain types of decisions. It would affect thousands or more pieces of content on the platform. And we expected the recommendations, on the other hand, to be somewhat more targeted, again, to to policy changes. And, And actually what's happened is the reverse. The board's decisions have been extremely context specific, and we can talk a little bit more about that, but they've relied on the user statement, which is something that we just don't have access to for for any other pieces of content. They've relied on things like they've gotten multiple different translations. They speak to regional experts and even in fact, have disagreements within the board about how much to take that into account. And so what we've ended up with is decisions that are either we we can't scale them because there is no identical content with parallel context because the board has been so specific or there's very little. And so we're still sort of working through, are there other ways to think about this? Are there other ways to scale impact? 
but again, it's it's been an area where because of the specificity of the board decisions, it's been fairly narrow. And so if you take, and this is one of my favorite cases, because I think it just so perfectly illustrates the difficulties of content moderation at scale, the Goebbels case. So in this case, there was a user who, who posted a quote attributed to Goebbels, the propaganda minister for the Nazis, with no other context, no other commentary, no pictures, nothing. We have a, a policy that says that you can't praise or support dangerous individuals or organizations. Not surprisingly, Goebbels and the Nazis fall in that. And so you can't post things that are seen as praise and support. You are allowed to post things about them or quote them if it's clear that you're condemning it or you're talking about it in historical context. Here, we had no signal other than the post, so it was removed. In the user statement, when they appealed to the board, they said, you know, this is a commentary on then President Trump, but meant to talk about all these other things. My, it would be clear to my friends and people who follow me that this is political commentary. The board agreed and we put the post back up. There's no parallel context for that, right? For other posts that are also an exact quote of Goebbels, we don't have the benefit of a user statement and it's just not the type of context we can take into account. So for that one, there, there's zero ICPC. Okay, I think that's really, that's really useful. We talked about AI and its accuracy. And I think one area that, or one request that comes up in content moderation a lot not from the board only, but from civil society and academics, is that there should be a human in the loop uh, for every content moderation decision made by AI, predominantly on appeal. So if an automated system takes down a post and the user disagrees with that decision, then there should be a right to appeal to a human to make sure that, that there's someone that can look at it and make, make sense of it actually using conscious thought. And this is really important because AI can be really, really stupid. Like I, this is not a hypothetical example. It gets onions confused with breasts and, and takes down pictures of onions or, or cooking videos, you know, and, and obviously a human looking at that would in two seconds recognize that that would not fall within Facebook's adult nudity policy. And Facebook's response to a request from the oversight board that a human be put into the loop, in particular in a breast cancer case where the breast cancer photo would have uh, fallen within an exception for raising awareness about health issues to the adult nudity policy, was that typically we only launch automated removals when AI systems are at least as accurate as content reviewers. And that caused me, and I think might cause a lot of people to do a double take. AI is obviously faster than humans, but it is really often more accurate. And how do you think about that then in the context of putting a human in, in the loop to make sure we're not taking down onions or breast cancer cases in identifying breasts? So is it necessarily true? How would we verify that it's true? And do you think it's a reasonable demand to put a human in the loop in all cases? This is a really great question. And Man, we have so many people working on AI and content governance at Facebook that I, I don't want to speak on behalf of everybody. And I'm sure if you asked different reasonable people at Facebook or otherwise, you're probably going to get different answers. So I'll caveat that that I'm one of many opinions here. So first, want to clarify that vast majority of the time we do have a human in the loop, either when the content is reported or when it gets appealed. So I think like the, the things that we can point to that have happened more recently were some of the 
closures that we had because of COVID, where we just did not have a lot of the human reviewers that we had prior to COVID. And that had resulted in us needing to rethink how, how we were doing enforcement and how to ensure that we had uh, fair and accurate decisions for decisions that happened while we were trying to address some of the challenges with COVID closures themselves. But during normal run of mode of operation, including today, we've been able to scale back a lot of the human review that we weren't able to provide during COVID. I think another another interesting dimension to this is talking about where is AI stupid or less accurate than human review, uh, but also being able to recognize that humans aren't always perfect in making decisions either. So I think like we have also seen, even from some of the cases that the, the board has chosen or has been deliberating over, that when we look back at who was making the decision in some of those cases, we have often had times where multiple humans have looked at the same case and come to different conclusions as to whether that fell in or out of bounds of our policies. So I think that's it's an area where we have to continue making progress in terms of accuracy of, of how our automation is working. But there are also some of these decisions that are just hard calls or just borderline cases. Um, so for instance, we, we may not always make as many of the right calls in areas that feel more subjective or may depend more on how somebody interprets some of these issues. I think bullying harassment is an interesting area to talk about there where different people may come to different conclusions about whether what somebody says was actually bullying harassment or if that was more up to interpretation. Some of these are, yeah, a lot of this is about how are things framed and how is how is the policy language written, but and we obviously need to make progress on both the dimension of how accurate our human review is, as well as accuracy of some of our automated review. Thanks. I, I think that's really, really helpful. I want to move to the question of why maybe my marks for the board or, or Facebook's responses to the board might be different to yours. And this is, in particular, my frustration with the with the label fully implementing in a number of cases in response to the board's recommendation. And one of the reasons why I feel especially frustrated by this is that it really works. You get a bunch of really good headlines uh, in the press um, when the press is paying attention to Facebook's responses to the board. So in particular, in response to the first batch of decisions and in response to the Trump decisions, where you gave yourself a gold star on a bunch of responses that I certainly, I don't, I don't know was fully justified when you're marking your own uh, homework. So for example, in the Trump decision, you said you were fully implementing 15 out of 19 uh, recommendations. And I think in my count, you got to about eight. And the reason in particular is that I don't know that it's clear from your responses that you're actually making any changes in response. So I think a number of them amount to something along the lines of, oh, no, we, we're, we're already doing that. And so it's hard to see whether that is actually fully implementing a recommendation. And, and I think in part, the board is making that recommendation on the basis implied in that recommendation is you may be doing this somewhat, but we want you to do it better. And the breast cancer case that we were talking about is a good example. So you said you were implementing fully the board's recommendation when your response was the majority of appeals are reviewed by content reviewers. If users appeal a decision we make to remove nudity, that appeal will be reviewed by a content reviewer, except in cases where we have capacity constraints, such as those related to COVID-19. And to say, 
except in cases where we have capacity restraint constraints is to say, oh yeah, it's reviewed by a human except for when it's not, because it's not clear what capacity constraints means when that applies. And also capacity constraints isn't a law of nature. It's something that Facebook has control over in the number of human reviewers that it employs. And so has anything changed in response to that board's recommendation? And if not, why is it fair to say that you're fully implementing it? Yes. <laughs> so I think, again, this is where I'm very interested in continuing to work through, is this the right way? Is this the right way for us to be having these conversations? And is this the right way to have this kind of large scale impact? So I think there are certain recommendations from, from the board, and a, a number of them were recommendations in the Trump case that were fudgy, right? Sort of take into account more context or do better at this thing. And I think you and others criticized us, I think fairly, and I think criticized the board on some of the recommendations, I think also fairly of what does it mean for us to to take that recommendation on and, and implement it fully? I think there are others and, you know, like obviously Rachel talked about being more specific in hate speech classifiers publishing our strike system, which we did after the Trump decision, consolidating our COVID-related standards, translating the community standards into Punjabi. There are a number that are much more concrete. And I think where it's easier to sort of grade ourselves of, you know, check, we've done this, it's complete. We have taken into account feedback from you and other stakeholders, and we're planning to make, I think, some further updates in the way that we talk about the recommendations in, in future 30-day responses and reports to make clear this is something we do already. And sometimes there is information asymmetry and the board just doesn't know that we do it already. Or no, this is something that we've taken on net new specifically as a result of the, the board decision. Yeah, so I think that that may encapsulate my feelings as well. I'm not sure that it's a super productive way of having this conversation for the board to issue some recommendations that just amount to something like, do better Facebook, and then Facebook re responds, we will do better, and everyone sort of pats themselves on the back for having done a good day's work, the board for saying, yes, we really knocked Facebook over the head there, and Facebook saying, oh, yes, we're chastened, we, we will do better. And that's not necessarily the kind of useful dialogue that does happen in a lot of cases for, you know, learning about content moderation and actually improving the systems. But I want to go back to the other category of recommendations, Jen, that you raised, which are some that are really tangible and really concrete. And these have had sort of really clear impacts um, as a result of the board. And I have a grouchy complaint here too, or or, or I'd love to get your reflections on this. It wouldn't be a conversation if you didn't. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. Evelyn the Grouch. So some of these, it's like, did you really need to put $130 million in a trust to work these things out? So some of them amount to Facebook should translate its community standards into Punjabi. There was one recommendation or one case that involved a mistake um, that had been made because Facebook lost a policy for three years. And I mean, that one just doesn't make any sense to me. I don't know how that happens and what else might have slipped down the back of the couch at Facebook. And I'm just wondering, you know, is this an example of the board really working or is this an example of someone being like, hey, Facebook, just get your house in order and we didn't need to spend $130 million for that to happen? I think that is a fair question. 
And I've actually been reflecting on this a lot, sort of as we as we're coming in on the the first year of the board and we step back, what what did we gain, right? What's the what's the return on the investment here? And I think on the one hand, it's so easy from the outside and things that may seem so obvious, like, of course, you should have your community standards in these other languages, or of course, you should publish your strike system. The reality is very different when you're inside. And so we have thousands of people across, you know, the product team, Rachel's team, policy team, and the operations team just putting out fires, dealing with new threats, dealing with new safety issues, dealing with bad actors who are trying to skirt the rules, as well as trying to proactively sort of make the whole system work better. And I think it's very easy to lose sight of the whole. And what we've seen from the board is things that once they come out, I think the immediate reaction from us too is like, oh yeah, that's a great recommendation. Of course we should do that. But it it takes, sometimes it just takes the external push or oversight to point to those things. And I I will note we're the only ones doing it, right? I think you talk a lot about YouTube, although I see that that Susan would just give you finally posted, (laughs) get created an op-ed today, Twitter, other platforms. But the process is ugly. We're sort of out there revealing ourselves but it's in service of a, of a bigger goal. So it's not just about what are some of the specific wins, so to speak, or some of the specific responses that we can rack up. It's about real systemic change to the way that we govern speech online. And so I view a lot of these things as progress along the way, but they're by no means the, the end. It wouldn't be an Arbiter's podcast if we didn't get a YouTube <laughs> shout out. Um, thank you for bringing that up. I think it's a fair point. I think that's one of the reasons why I have been, you know, cautiously optimistic about the the board experience and interested in, in watching it and spend so much time writing about it as I do, because I do think that it's an innovation. And I do think that we have seen some of the positive impacts. I think that as much as I have played Evelyn in the Grouch, I look at that first quarterly report and I think it's hard to say that the board is just a PR campaign and isn't having some systemic impact on Facebook. Do I think it could be more? Do I think that it should be more and that that remit should be expanded and that you know there should be, ironically, more transparency around what Facebook's doing in, as a result of this experiment? Absolutely. And I will keep being grouchy about it. But I, I do also think it's fair to say that no other company has stepped up. One of the themes of the board's decisions that I'm interested to ask you about is that it has made a number of decisions that would put you in a bit of an awkward position in relation to governments around the world. So one case is where the board has ordered Facebook to restore a post to encouraging discussion around the solitary confinement of Abdullah Ocalan, a founding member of the Kurdistan Workers' Party, um, which is a sensitive topic in Turkey. There's another case in India regarding a video that was critical of Modi and the BJP, um, which is obviously an extremely volatile and difficult situation at the moment in India, where India is really wrapping up on crack- cracking down on platforms. And there's been a lot of reporting around how Facebook may have acceded to a number of those demands for political reasons that in a way that was, you know, troubling. And there's another case coming up soon about the Israel-Palestine conflict. And 
a lot of these cases are cases where Facebook said, oops, we did make a, a mistake uh, and we've reversed that before the board drew attention to it. I'm curious about whether there's a limit to how Facebook will follow the board's recommendations, how far it will take them when it's a situation like that where it really does put you in hot water around the world with governments. Yeah, so I think there's a difference between there's a legal requirement. Um, for example, we must take something down, which we've been clear up front, sort of out of scope of the board. The board can't order us to do something that will cause us to violate the law versus is unpopular. And you can argue that a number of decisions the board made, including the decision on Trump, put either us or the board in an unpopular position. And that's really, that's part of the goal of the board. And that's part of the reason why they're independent is we know some of these things are uncomfortable. And that's, you know, as, as tech people say, it's a feature and not a bug. So how's the board been received internally within Facebook? And I want to unpack a little bit what I mean by that. It's possible that the board might solve a number of Mark Zuckerberg's headaches because he can lob controversial decisions over to the board and then try and make them take the heat for those calls. Although, as we saw in the Trump case, the board wasn't really uh, super keen on that idea, so it lobbed the decision back to Facebook in a wonderful and very expensive and time-consuming game of tennis. But it's possible that you know, in, in trying to cure Mark's headaches, it's creating a bunch of headaches for people in the company by forcing them to change policies that they had worked hard on and thought got the right balance or Rachel, you know, forcing them to come up with engineering solutions for things that are really difficult and may sound simple in a board recommendation, but actually take, you know, you have said in some of your responses, years, multi-year projects to implement. And so is there frustration within Facebook that we're doing this and who are these people to tell us? how to run a platform when they don't really know how content moderation works at scale? This is, yeah, great question. I'll, I'll start and then I'm sure Jen has more to add here. I think we've seen a very strong positive response to the role that the board is playing generally across teams. Obviously, I'm not going to speak for everybody at Facebook and people have nuanced opinions on the board's specific decisions and how we should implement them. I think we're seeing healthy debate and discussion about how we should respond to some of the board's recommendations. And that's good because a lot of these recommendations or decisions aren't obvious. This is the whole point of setting up the board is because a lot of these are hard. And so I think it's good that we're seeing some of some of that debate. I think that we've seen strong reception to the board. And one demonstration of this is in talking about some of our the cases that we refer over to the board and just seeing the amount of conversation that happens internally for people wanting to refer cases over to the board and really seeing that as a way to um, to get more perspective on how we should be weighing in on some of these decisions. I think that's a really good indication that the board has gotten strong reception internally for the role that it's playing, even if we don't see everybody agreeing on every specific decision. I have had, as, as other of my team, others on my team, people from all corners of the company reach out to us and say like, 
do you think we could get the oversight board to help give us advice about how to build this thing or how we should think about this other thing? So it's been very interesting to see the reception outside of, of sort of the immediate group of people who are impacted by the decisions, but those in, in other areas of the company more generally of, oh, we kind of like this, this thing. We kind of like having these thoughtful, independent people weigh in on important decisions. And is there a way that we can, we can get them in on the action here a little bit more? And so when I talk about areas that we didn't predict, but where the board can expand into, I think these are all sorts of things we're taking into, into account. How much do you and the board talk outside the public eye? So how much uh, interaction between the two institutions happens in a way that isn't transparent? One area in particular would be that Facebook makes a bunch of the responses to board questions and makes its submissions, and a bunch of that isn't public, although I'm, I've am i been relatively impressed with how much of that gets ventilated in, in board opinions. But you know, how much are you talking in ways that I don't see that, you know, other watchdogs don't see and the public doesn't see? And if it's at all, is that something that, you know, you could understand might be concerning given one of the biggest criticisms of the board is that it's not sufficiently independent from Facebook? Yeah. So I think to begin with, independence doesn't mean isolation. And I think the board doesn't work if there's zero communication between Facebook and the board. So the board members themselves, I think, have answered this question about their independence best. You know, I think Alan Rusbridger, the former editor of The Guardian, was asked on, on Kara Switcher and some other board members have been asked. And their response is pretty much all the same of like, have you met me? <laughs> if this thing wasn't independent, I would just quit. And so I think there is, it's sort of unfair and cheap to suggest that the board members would be so wowed by conversations with, with the team at Facebook that they couldn't maintain their independence. That being said, I would say we talk mostly to the staff. So the board has a staff of, I think, 40 or 50 people at this point that are, I think, the closest analogy is a bit like law clerks. So they They'll review, help review and select cases. They'll help do research, get translations, tee up options for the board, things like that. And there I'd say there's fairly regular communication on totally uninteresting things like logistics of when will we receive this filing? When will this come back and forth? You know, that sort of stuff. Rachel and her team have to interact fairly regularly with the product team at the board, basically to make sure everything is working. So as well as, as we're expanding. So for example, when we expanded to leave ups, the product teams talked closely about how to, how to handle that, how to build the product to handle that, what improvements they need. We are talking more about what are good mechanisms for I should say, less stilted communication between Facebook and the board. Some of these conversations that we've been having about issues of scale, about how AI works, things like that, obviously we we can and should and do have them in writing, 
but it's always, it's not the best format for us to really have fulsome discussions or give fulsome explanations about this. And so again, sort of in line with the recommendations, I think it's something that we are thinking through, but also to your point, want to make clear that there aren't things that are happening there that should be out of public view. How do we share, how do we share the substance of those discussions publicly? So for the last question, I want to get a little bit meta and it's not a question that I think I'm going to get a straight answer to because it would kind of defeat the point of the question, but, but we can try. And it's in relation to attention that I see for Facebook in conversations like this one and any sort of public representation about the board, which is that there's this tension on the one hand of wanting to tout it and talk about how great it is and how we might be present at the creation of a wonderful, you know, new era of internet governance. And then on the other hand, there's this tension that if you talk talk it up too much, it does feed into that narrative that it's just a PR exercise. And it also undermines the idea that it's a real check on Facebook. If you're like, oh, yeah, that's such a great point. And, oh, we were just waiting for someone to tell us that. Thank you so much. And can we get the board to, to help us out in this area? You know, there's this idea that the board should be a robust check on, on Facebook's power. And that doesn't sort of really play into that. And I'm curious, and this is what I don't know that you'll answer directly, but you can um, answer in, in whatever way you, you know you can, is how, how many times is there where, you know, the people that are in charge of actually running the Facebook oversight process and implementing its decisions want to say something about the board, and then it gets run through comms, and it comes out the other side being something different? Sometimes. <laughs> do you want to, you know, do you want to, you know, tap out something in Morse code or give a yeah. give a traffic light answer? I think the folks who work on the Facebook side of the oversight board are sometimes put in an, in an interesting position where, on the one hand, there is obviously and naturally a desire to protect the company or to protect the, the work of their colleagues and. And if I can divert for a second, what I will say is I, I've i been at Facebook for close to four years. Before I moved over to work on the oversight board, I was in the privacy legal team, which we can spend a whole other podcast talking about. And I knew I didn't know that much about content. And I had a lot of the same reaction that you and others have of like, come on, this isn't that hard. Like, it's not that hard to keep up breastfeeding and take down nudity. And I have to say, coming over and have having spent a lot more time with Rachel, her team, the policy team, the operations team, I think they have the hardest job at Facebook, like bar none. And so I think there's sort of a, a to back to your question, I think there's a natural desire of my colleagues are working really hard. They're doing everything they can. They genuinely care about users and the safety of users. They themselves are users. And they want to make sure that their work is fairly represented. But on the flip side, that there's a much longer term goal. There's a much longer term direction that we need to move in and status quo isn't working. You know, I think if there's anything everyone will agree with, it's status quo isn't working. And and part of moving on from there is accepting the board, even when it's ugly and even when they're saying things that are unflattering or look bad for Facebook. And so 
it's not a it's not really a full answer to your question, but I, I think it's something that in a certain way, in a personal level, a lot of the folks who work on the board are grappling with. And I think for the most part, really push for the long term vision, you know, that the quarterly update is not always flattering. To your point, there are places where I wish we we had done more. I wish we had made more progress on the recommendations, but we are where we are. And I'd say, you know, to take it full circle back to the word that we use a lot, the guiding principle for our team is transparency. And that means that sometimes things are not going to be flattering. I think that's a great place to end it. I think that the idea that no one is happy with the status quo is certainly true. I think that the only thing that there's agreement on is that what we currently have kind of sucks and isn't working, that absolutely every stakeholder from platforms to governments to academics to users uh, is that something's got to change. And so the the board is something changing and it's it's fun to watch and it's been fun to talk about. So thank you very much for joining us. Thanks, Evelyn. Thank you. You've been listening to Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's mini-series on our online information ecosystem. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed. We'll be back with another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Bookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer was Ian Enright. Our producer is Jen Pacha-Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare podcast on whatever app you use, and thanks for listening. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.